Okay, so welcome to week two um, of our four-week series, Exploring Consciousness. So, before I say anything else, the format of the evening tonight is, is it's going to revolve around these comfy chairs here. That's all I'll say, okay? Well, at least the first part is anyway, because tonight we're going to be looking at uh, consciousness largely from the philosophical perspective. Last week we looked at consciousness largely from the scientific perspective, and I've got some slides to remind you of what we went through last week. So I'm, I'm going to remind you, um, uh, those of you who are here, just a quick 17-slide um, summary of what were 50 <laughs> slides in 10 minutes, what were 55 slides from last week, and then we're going to go into the comfy chair format, where we're going we're gonna to have a dialogue between um, uh, a philosophical perspective on consciousness with a bit of interjection uh, from, a, from a Buddhist from, a, from a, somebody who's still grappling with Buddhism. Now, as I said last week, the reason why we're doing this, um, this series of talks, is because we're, we're very, very interested in the central teaching of Buddhism, which is Pratitya Samapada, condition arising and, and condition falling. You know, things come into being and they pass away. And, and this is a teaching which is going to um, fascinate me, compel me, etc., for the rest of my life. Now, I see science as a way into uh, my, my more direct practices of explore, exploring this great vision of Buddhism, you know, my, the direct practices, of, for example, of meditation or, or going on retreat. And uh, you know, the more kind of ways I can make consciousness, which is the stuff of, of Buddhism, of course, uh, interesting, the better. Because I think fascination uh, with something is very, makes something much more compelling and much more engaging. Okay, so before we go on to the philosophical perspective, um, that's all I need to say, is it? Yeah, okay. This is Chris, by the way. Chris is getting very, very comfortable. Uh, but in ten minutes, he's going to be more uncomfortable because he's going to be sitting there. Okay, so um, quick summary starting from now, 27 minutes. So we, we, we start off with a definition. Well, what is consciousness? You've got to start talking. It's good to start off with definitions. So we saw that consciousness derives from the Latin conscientia, uh, which primarily means moral conscience, which is quite interesting, or in the literal sense, shared knowledge. So immediately it's saying that consciousness is, maybe has something to do with um, others, you know, with our interaction with the others in the world. And we also saw that the Oxford Dictionary is a bit drier and awareness of something. We also saw that consciousness has, is nothing new, you know. Uh, uh, mankind has been interested and fascinated by consciousness um, well, for, uh, for ever since consciousness arose, I guess. And um, even in the 1500s, they, they, we saw that they were doing some deep dissections of the brain, uh, trying to understand um, what, what kind of structure the brain might support consciousness. And, you know, any, any, any kind of consideration of consciousness must take into account the qualities uh, of consciousness, which, are, which and I listed some subjectivity. You know, we can all, we're all experiencing now. We're, we're all experiencing sensations in the body. We're all experiencing feelings and thoughts. Subjectivity. Me, you. Self-awareness. And we're, we're aware of, we can make ourselves more or less aware of any particular experience which we're having now, of our thoughts, our feelings, sensations of the body. So another quality of consciousness is sentience. You know, perception, we, uh, 
perception through the senses. And the other, another quality is sapience. You know, we can have intelligent interactions uh, with ourselves, with others, and with the world. And the other, the last, the, another quality of consciousness which, which I listed was the ability to perceive relationships between oneself and one's environment. So any kind of exploration of consciousness, kind of, it's quite interesting to say, well, what are actually we trying to explore? And, and that was a little list there. Now, I set the perspective right away uh, because I think it's very important to realise that, yes, we might be walking on the street thinking, you know, we're, we're, we're fantastic as homo sapiens, sapiens, which we are. But what I, what I pointed out last week, straight from the, right from the start, was that we're actually st- uh, standing on millions of shoulders. You know, we're not... And, and this, this was my first example of, of, of conditionality. That, you know, he, um, if you... If you if you reduce life on this earth or, or the, the history of the earth into a 24-hour clock, uh, we arose, Homo sapiens sapiens arose at 11.59. So we've only been around, Homo sapiens has only been around a, a minute amount of the history of the earth and the history of life. And um, life is, is, is predicted to have arisen around uh, 12 minutes past three. So a lot of things have been going on. <laughs> Um, for Homo sapiens to rise at 11.59. And I also said, you know, us, Homo sapiens, sapiens, Homo sapiens, um, is, are totally dependent upon plants. Plants are the only organisms on this planet which can capture the sunlight and convert it into energy, which we then use either directly by eating plants themselves or indirectly if you eat uh, animals. So the point is that we're, we're, standing, you know, we're standing on millions and millions of years of conditionality. Don't, and don't take that for granted. So we, looked, we saw that about, around about six million years ago, the common ancestor um, uh, gave, 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 what's the word? What's, gave rise to, thank you very much, to uh, chimpanzees and homo sapiens. Now, the chimpanzees are the closest relative of, of Homo sapiens. And that happened about six million years ago. And then we looked at the um, you know, human evolution itself. As, although we've only been around a, a minute, relatively speaking, about, around about Homo sapiens has been around about 200,000 years. Again, we're standing on a lot of, kind of evolution in terms of um, uh, uh, hominid species. There's been quite a few of hominid species around, one, which we're one of. And interestingly, you know, we're, this, we're just this little blip here. Whereas something like Homo erectus was around for two, three million years and they, and they died out. And so nothing is guaranteed. You know, there's us, a little blip. There's Homo erectus, three million years, around three million years ago, but they, they died out, as did quite a few uh, early hominid species. So there's nothing, there's nothing guaranteed. And we also looked at the evolution of consciousness in terms of art. You know, like exp- as con- you know, consciousness allows us, uh, one of the qualities, to interact with ourselves and the world. And we, we, we looked at this one example of, of, um, of, of, of a very early um, example of, 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 uh, of art, 30,000 years old. And what it shows is that the, the fact that you've got a feline face on top of a human body um, suggested that it gives, it evid- or ev- it gives circumstantial evidence of the ability of the artist to think abstractly. 
And that's one of the, another quality of consciousness. So abstract thinking, you know, it allows us to leave our kind of focus and go away somewhere else, but still think about that thing which we were looking at. So 30,000 years ago, you know, consciousness was, was producing some wonderful... I couldn't do that. I don't know if you could. I couldn't. I wouldn't have a clue, uh, you know, to chip away. So that you also had to have tools. We also looked at the fact that the evolution of the brain... And now I made an assumption that uh, the human brain is primary in supporting consciousness, okay? Whether you agree or not, uh, whether I agree or not with that, or whether you agree or not, that was something which we debated. But um, if, we, if we assume that the, that the brain is one of the primary conditions or processes which supports consciousness, then it's very interesting to look at the evolution of brain, uh, the human brain itself. And what we saw is that um, the evolution of the whole human brain has been in terms of size, but in, also in terms of structure. Now, both of them are very important. The structure enabled uh, new... There's, there's kind of stru- new structures arose in the human brain, uh, which we looked at, which kind of give it... Um, or, or support particular aspects of consciousness, for example, um, emotions. So it wasn't just size, it was also the... These are to scale, by the way. It was also the, the, the structures of the brain which were important. We also looked at this, this, wonder, this wonder of evolution... The neuron. The, the neuron is the is the, the fundamental building block of of the brain. Now, this 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 cell uh, had to evolve from a, a circular cell. So it's been, as we saw last week, it's been stretched out. It's been put on some little hairy bits on the top and at the bottom. So you know, th- this basic fundamental building block of the brain is a wonder of evolution. You know what it does? It transmits uh, electrical and chemical signals uh, throughout the brain. And then we went on to start looking at the, the, the structure of the brain itself and what kind of, you know, how the structure of the brain, uh, at least scientifically, uh, could support or, or suggestions on how the structure of the brain could support consciousness. So, you know, there's a lot going on in the brain at any one time. Sensations, movement, judgment, reward, you know, for what we, those, those kind of behaviour patterns which support our, uh, our survival, vision, uh, coordination, pain etc. And what we saw last week is different parts of the brain apparently uh, support different things. So the, the, uh, the, the primitive brain, uh, just on, sitting on top of the, 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 uh, the, the top of the spinal cord, um, is primitive. It arose uh, probably about 600 million years ago. And it's to do with uh, self-preservation, the fight-flight kind of, kind of thing. And then the um, the next kind of uh, brain structures to arise is what's called the limbic system, and that's to do with emotions, how we feel. Uh, and also, and the, the last bit of the human brain to evolve was the, what's called the neocortex, the, the, the stuff on top of the brain. It's huge, it's massive in us, and it allows us to do, do some intellectual tasks. And what we saw is that current theories of, of, of consciousness, at least from a scientific perspective, is saying it's not just one part of the brain which is supporting consciousness, it's different parts, but they're communicating with each other. They're communi- so, so the way which we emote um, communi- uh, um, influences how we think and vice versa. And it, the, the influences, the, conditioned, um, the conditionality which is going on in the brain is, is to do with uh, how these different parts of the brain communicate with each other. 
And nothing is fixed. I mean, yeah, I mean, you can say a lot of things is fixed, but what we saw last week is that we can, you know, the, the neural connections in the brain, they're not necessarily fixed. You know, so we used the example of learning a human language last week. You know, we can all learn a human language, and that requires uh, new neurons in the brain making new connections. So, nothing, you know, we can, we can learn. We can, we can learn meditation. We can... Um, we can, uh, through the years, etc. And one, one of the, 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 the main theory which you looked at was that of Al, Edelman, who's a prominent neuroscientist, um, and he started putting forward theories of consciousness in the late 80s. Um, and he came up, he, he purports that in the brain there's what's called a dynamic core, and anything which is in the dynamic core is conscious. Anything outside of the dynamic core is unconscious. So the dynamic core is kind of, if he talks in terms of a, a ball of energy, which is, which is kind of holding every, our experience together into, a, into an integrated whole. But it's, it's, it's flexible, you know, so whatever is in the dynamic core we're conscious of. And it's changing, you know, the, the activity in the brain is changing pretty constantly. So what we're feeling is changing. And what I what and this is the final slide, and I have done it in ten minutes. Um, so what what I was kept coming back to is that you know this this quote by Karl Popper who said knowledge and understanding advance not through asking for definitions of what things are, but through asking why they occur and how they work. So I, I am not a reductionist. Okay, I'm not saying that you know if we can fully understand the brain, we can fully understand consciousness. If we can fully define the brain and define what this does and that does and that does, we'll be able to assemble the digital puzzle together and say, aha, now I understand consciousness because I don't think that's true. I think there's a, you know, we were exploring last week, the, this mysterious element of consciousness. And what Buddhism does, I think, is not, not necessarily to try and define things. It's well, how things work, you know. If we're skillful, that's what happens. If we're unskillful, that's, that's what happens. So that's the spirit of, of these, uh, these talks. So now... So that's the scientific perspective, very, very, very briefly. We covered a lot of material last week, and those are the salient points, I thought. So what we're going to do now is um, we're going to explore consciousness through a philosophical perspective. Yeah? And for that, we're going to put the lights up, and Chris is going to sit here. So I'd like to introduce you to Chris. So I've known Chris now about, what, three years Three years, and um, he's in the study group actually on Thursday night. So if you want to know uh, what it's like coming into a, a men's study group, you can ask Chris afterwards. I'm sure he'd be delighted to answer questions on that, as well as the philosophical um, perspective of consciousness. So Chris studied philosophy. Was it Cambridge? Sorry, Oxford. Uh, at Oxford. So <laughs> sorry, uh, I should have done my homework. Obviously, my dynamic core was not in the region of what Chris said last week. So, Chris, uh, I inv- and I invited Chris to come and say something about the philosophical perspective of consciousness, because I don't know that much, and I thought I'd, I'd ask somebody who does. So, the way this is going to work is um, Chris is going to say things, right, and I'm going to, if I'm quick enough, to pick up some points and say, well, actually, from a Buddhist perspective, this is it. So, if you wouldn't mind, if you could just let us do the dialoguing, and then what we'll do 
when it's over, we'll have a cup of tea, and then it's your chance, all right? Like last week, uh, it's your, it'd be your chance to say, I agree with this, I disagree with this. Actually, I think there's, you, you haven't told the whole story. Now, last week, um, we had the discussion for a full hour. Let's, so let's see what we can do this week. But first, uh, we'll, we'll dialogue with the philosopher. I'll bring the chair over. Mm. Water. water on the floor. So you must notice that the, um, these are the most comfortable chairs in the centre. Well, of course, to say I studied philosophy at Oxford sounds very grand. I've been telling Martha Schroeder off for this. But uh, I did, but it was a long time ago. So I've now concluded that the brain consists entirely of cogs. And uh, mine are quite rusty. Anyway, let's give it a go. It's a massive, massive subject. Um, And uh, we're just going to look at a few ideas here. And uh, a lot of this will consist of raising questions. Um, because the answers are, well, the answers are many and varied over a very long period of time, and people are still arguing about it. In fact, lots of philosophers have just given up arguing about it because they feel they can't really make a lot of headway. So, I'd say, what could be more certain to each of us that is that we are conscious? But what is this consciousness like? And how can this phenomena be contained in a physical body within a physical world. Consciousness is a very strange thing. It has um, a strange anomaly at its heart. Um, All natural phenomena are at least theoretically equally accessible to any observer. But any particular case of consciousness has only privileged access by that individual. For this reason and many others, we have no really good theory of consciousness and not even a clear description of what this phenomenon compromises. Consciousness raises many baffling questions, and I'm going to mention a few here and break it up in the middle. For example, are animals conscious? And if so, is it in the same way as we are? Secondly, for example, could a robot or computer be conscious? Perhaps not one we have now, but theoretically we might be able to design one that is. Um, These first two questions, and I'll come on to a few more, give rise to an ethical question. I was thinking about this on how we treat other entities um, and how we do that and the extent to which we, um, we, the way we treat them may well depend on the extent to which we think they are conscious. Um, but it's a generally vegetarian um, because they respect the consciousness of animals or perhaps that's the reason they're vegetarian. Um, 
But perhaps we also uh, feel that other creatures have differing levels of consciousness. And this warrants different types of behavior from ourselves. So some people will be very kind to our higher order animals and care little for lower order animals. What's that based on? We all have these assumptions that we just say, oh, yeah, you know that a, you know, an ant is worth little, but a rabbit is worth a lot and a monkey is worth a lot more. Well, where do we get all that from? Um, now, another few. Could a person have unconscious thoughts, sensations, pains, perceptions? We'll come back to that. Are we conscious when we dream? Well, yeah. <laughs> I'll give that one a miss for the moment. We might talk about it later. And might a human being harbour more than one conscious agent within their brain? Some of what Mahasrada says could slightly imply that, and I think we'll come back to that conclusion in a way. Anyway, there's little doubt that um, much more will be learnt from empirical discoveries over time. But will it ever really explain consciousness and what it is like to be conscious? Now, the concept of consciousness, I'm going to split into two things here, uh, viewed from the inside and viewed from the outside. So firstly, viewed from the inside. We have no problem accepting that much goes on inside our brain and body of which we are unaware. That's quite usual. We're sure lots of things are happening. We don't know exactly what they are. But it seems nothing can be more intimately known to us than those things of which we are conscious. The things of which I am conscious and the ways in which I am conscious of them determine what it is like to be me. When we are conscious and fully awake, that we are conscious is in no doubt. It also seems to be true that all things around us divide into one of two categories things that are and things that are not conscious. Bricks and calculators do not have an inner life, which is a term sometimes used for consciousness, or a point of view, again, that. Or, to put it another way, it's something, it's something like, it, it is like something to be me, or you, but not an inanimate object. Now, viewed from the outside, Consideration of others by us is, of course, necessarily from the outside. People seem to do as we do, react to their sensory inputs, act to avoid pain, learn information, solve problems, etc. Generally exhibit what we call intelligence. However, in saying this, we are assuming what we are observing is the same as we experience, but we cannot prove this. In fact, it would be theoretically possible to design a robot that explained its own experiences and its reactions, but, but most people would presume that a robot was still not conscious. Perhaps other humans are like us because they are organically similar. But there again, a robot could be constructed to be functionally similar to a human being, or theoretically far in the future. So that raises the question, why therefore do we think that some similarities confirm consciousness and others don't? Again, the extent to which we perceive similarities in behaviour um, with others may generate an unfortunate tendency to hierarchical treatment of, uh, of other human beings based on what we presume is the level of their consciousness or sensibilities. So again, we're seeing similarities we're, we're see between our behaviour and theirs, 
and then we're judging, we're reading back, we're saying, oh, if I could do that, that, or speak in that way, or paint in that way, or whatever, that would say something about my level of consciousness. What's, and I would say, they would say things about what's going on in my brain, but if you could do that, would that say exactly the same as what's going in your brain? Perhaps not at all. What this amounts to is a presumption that various outside indicators imply the presence of what each conscious entity knows from the inside. But this cannot be confirmed. For ourselves, our inner life and our outwardly observable perceptions appear to coincide. Can this coincidence be confirmed of others? And if not, we are all doomed to be solipsists, as the... uh, uh, the well-known old theory, um, philosophical theory, uh, solipsist is um, a belief that only one's own experiences and existence can be known for, with certainty. Live a rather strange life if you are one of those. Um, another a person telling you of the coincidence of their outer and inner brain experiences, or mind experiences, so we say, effectively confirms nothing at all because it is all outside to us. If a person over there says to me, oh yes, when I, when you do that to me, I also feel that, well, that's just a report to me. I can't confirm that they're feeling it. They're just telling me that they're feeling it. And and that, that again, is the strange um, aspect of consciousness that it's unconfirmable from the outside by neutral observers. So therefore, we can be fooled that there is a special inner light present in everybody. But for, perhaps there is just darkness inside everybody else, and I'm just talking to myself. I don't know, you see. It's a worrying thought. Um, anyway, in which case, we know it's not bothered to record this. Um, anyway, I'll see. Perhaps then the Buddhist practice, uh, we were talking to Marshall about this the other day, uh, the Buddhist practice of metta is of great importance. If that is a possibility, that you could even think that, then uh, Metta um, tries to, to bridge that common humanity between us um, and basically assumes that the other person has what you have and brings you closer together. Um, so a very powerful practice and uh, lead you away from thinking that you're the only one with the consciousness, which would be an unfortunate thought. Um, now I want to mention something I call the revolution of the unconscious. Uh, basically in the 17th century, the philosopher John Locke, a very clever Englishman um, from the period of Enlightenment when there were a lot of good English or British philosophers, should I say, David Hume being another one. Um, he was Scottish. Um, he, uh, Locke and subsequent thinkers claimed that um, what is essential to the mind is consciousness and more specifically self-consciousness. The mind's activities are transparent to itself. And on the face of it, that seems true. If I think something, only I know it and I see it clearly. So it seems true. But of course, Freud exploded all of this, and Freud and others, of course, um, but he's the one who's most famous for it, with his hypothesis of the unconscious mind. A view that at the time met with incredulity and denial. How could there be beliefs, desires or feelings that were unknown to introspection. This raises the interesting question of what having a belief is if one is currently unaware of it. I started to think about this and think, what a strange idea. I have beliefs in this and that. But if I'm not, if the dynamic core isn't engaging with these beliefs, well, what does that mean? Do I, it just, it's, it's a very strange idea. 
um, that maybe they're just printed into memory. Um, so this is raising the question as we were talking about faith. Yeah. You were saying that if, if, if you're not aware of something, where does that faith go? If you're not aware of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I mean, the scientific perspective would say, well, you know, it would still be there, it's just that the dynamic core is not, you know, it's not being included in the dynamic core. Then that's strange because then the belief is just a memory, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> Which is, well, yeah, it's an odd idea. Perhaps we have to constantly, I mean, the, the, the Buddhism will say, well, how about, you know, we, 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 we do meditation and we increase our awareness. That's what you're trying to do. So the awareness there is um, re-exposing our own beliefs to ourselves, to our dynamic good, pulling them up and looking at them, pulling them up and looking at them, not only beliefs, all sorts of things. And um, I guess we concluded that one of the most important reasons for that is to try and give one some consistency of behavior. Otherwise, you would be reinventing these beliefs every single time you came across a situation. Um, the more aware you are, the more consistent you are keeping your beliefs in front of your mind. This aside, many patterns of human behavior are explained by unseen, unconscious phenomena. And as a result, the concept of unconsciousness eventually became well accepted. And that was the main reason. It just explained so many things so successfully. The unconsciousness got accepted fairly rapidly after that. Consequently, we've come to accept that a vast amount of information processing occurs within us all the time. And it's entirely inaccessible to, to inward in, inspection, mostly. But more controversially, perhaps, some activities may be accessible to outsiders um, more than they are to the owners of the minds in which the activities take place, which is a rather strange idea. But it's true. You, we all know the problem. You can't see the wood for the trees. Um, you know, things are going on. You can't see things clearly. And also, a clever uh, psychologist like Freud, or more advanced since then, really, can look at your behaviour and say what it is you are thinking. What it is you are thinking, basically, and you may not be aware of what you are thinking. You may think you are, but you may not. So it's very strange. There's this whole world going on, doing things in the brain, um, but doing higher things in a way. I think that's quite a strange thing from coming out from you know your descriptions of the brain there. Um, you tend to think of these lower areas coping with all the you know the functions, arms and legs and everything else, and eating and so on, and this higher bit that's clearly aware of everything and so on. But even that isn't quite correct because there's loads of complicated stuff going on, even fairly high up functions, and you're still not aware of them if, of course, as you say, the dynamic core isn't looking at that particular area at any one time. So, um, so it appears that we have many non-conscious subsystems functioning within our minds, entirely lacking an inner life of their own Perhaps you could call this mindless but intelligent machines, not unlike computers. This is now, of course, the exact reverse of what feel, um, uh, of Locke's idea, the feeling that the unconscious mentality was incomprehensible, for it raises a further challenge to consciousness. consciousness. If mentality need not be conscious, there's much mentality going on, very higher brain functions carrying on, 
um, controlling you and eventually even giving rise to thoughts. If they need not be conscious, what actually is the need for consciousness? Um, and that's, well, that's, that's one of the problems that philosophy and science, I think, possibly have come across uh, quite extensively. I don't know whether you've come across that, that particular idea. It's what actually is the need for consciousness? To what extent could we function without the sort of self-awareness that we have? Um, it's difficult to say for sure. There is a, a fairly, new, well, a newish theory in the, I came along in the 90s about the mind and brain, which maybe we'll come back to, which I was reading just uh, just the other day, which has developed a whole new idea about this, which is, is quite interesting. There's a whole subsection of this area that I haven't got time to go into about the difference between the mind and the brain. Um, pet topic of mine, but uh, <laughs> we'll leave off that for a moment. Um, there is a, a guy called Carl Lashley, an American uh, neuropsychologist, um, suggested that no activity of the mind is ever conscious. What he meant is by this is that all processing of thoughts, all processing altogether in the brain is invisible. You cannot actually see what the processing is, um, so however hard you look. The eye not being able to see itself and yet it's still an, an organ for visual perception. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You cannot look in on how what goes on. You can see, of course, a thought. Well, most people can't see thoughts arising. Um, well, um, but actually, I was thinking about that. That's a bit, a bit like the pure awareness, isn't it? If you if you become good at it, at this type of meditation, you can actually begin to see thoughts arise, can't you? Not only realize that you've been thinking something and get rid of it, which is kind of the stage I'm at, but <laughs> if you're a bit more advanced at it, I think you can actually begin to see them arise, can't you? So then you're not seeing processing, but you are seeing the very early parts of thoughts, aren't you? I guess. Um, so the question is, if there are all these subsystems and they're all interacting um, um, and they've all got these important functions, is there a subsystem that deserves to be called the self? And really, from what you were implying, there isn't. There isn't. It's interaction of the subsystems. I want to look briefly at um, something that Marshall referred to in his talk, actually, uh, split-brain cases. It's a bit ghoulish, but um, philosophers and scientists have made loads of progress from the um, from the uh, unhappy uh, uh, you know afflictions of others uh, especially people who have all sorts of strange mental um, defects I suppose to be to be fair um, actually I remember a really bizarre case when I was studying I don't know if you've ever heard this one there was a guy in America um, this is apropos of nothing really he was banging a pole into the ground and uh, there was some old dynamite from a mining accident, uh, mining um, operation that had carried on before in the ground, and the pole was about this big. He hit the pole, uh, the pole hit the dynamite, and the pole right went straight through his head. Well, he survived, and in fact, he survived. <laughs> he lived on and on and on very happily, and it removed a great big core like that right through the middle of his head. And uh, it just became an absolutely fascinating study for all the psychologists to see what this bit of brain missing actually did to him. <laughs> Amazingly, the brain, and I think this is perhaps something that you were referring to in a way, um, the brain compensated. Of course it couldn't completely compensate, and I think later on all sorts of uh, strange behaviour did begin, but it took months for it to begin to happen. So the brain actually kind of compensated, it went around it, which is uh, interesting. Anyway, that's uh, I don't know where that came from. Um, so, back to the split brain. 
Yes, uh, if you if you if there's a, a damage cuts the corpus callosum, which is the part joining the two cerebral hemispheres together, um, this leads to a this gives rise to a person who sort of has somewhat two two different independent minds, not totally different, but they are they show independent characteristics. The lines of intercommunication have been cut, leading to two separate mind-like entities. The question of interest here is. Do both now have an inner life? Perhaps only the dominant half, with the other controlling only subconscious behavioural systems. If, on the other hand, both are supposed to have consciousness, then perhaps there are other processing subsistence of the brain that possess their own inner lives. If the left and the right brain have inner lives, then does this bit have an inner life, or this bit, or this bit, and this bit? You know, Maybe all the subsystems, if you isolated other bits, maybe other bits could seem conscious. It's um, very strange, that one. And it begins to give you the idea that your head's full of uh, different consciousnesses. That's the plural. So speculation leaves one wondering whether we are made up of a host of conscious entities all interacting and taking part in the conscious and self-conscious experience, which might explain a certain lack of mental integration we often appear to experience in everyday life. Um, I want to sort of make a break here. Um, just to uh, mention the importance of identity in our lives. Identity is, again, another very large uh, philosophical debate that's been going on for a long time. It appears to be vital uh, to us it, uh, in everybody's lives uh, that we have a strict feeling of identity. And in Buddhist terms, it is high, but in Buddhist terms, it is a highly conditioned thing. For example, if one suffers from the onset of amnesia, does the loss of memory that appears to constitute the, our idea of self mean that the memory loss that we suffer therefore implies our identity has gone? Um, there's been much thought on that subject. Uh, are you the same person if you've lost all of your memory? Well, maybe yes, maybe no. Of course, in this example, the body stays the same and it must contain some elements of our identity both from its appearance, continuity of appearance, but also from the internal conditioning that it has effect on the mind. Because, of course, if you've got the same body, then your brain, without its memories, is going to start to form some similar thought processes and so on. Um, just because you've got the same body, they interact with each other. Of course, they do. Um, Descartes' notion of... Um, by the way, Descartes was really the person who got most of the mind-brain thinking off to a start. Prior to that, everything was based on the ancient Greek theory, Aristotle mainly, and um, by modern standards, they were extremely primitive, although <laughs> very clever at the time. It took a very, very long time before Descartes came along, in the, if someone can remember when that was, around the 1700s, I guess, and started to... Uh, to really think about the mind and the brain in, in a new and modern way. So he kicked off the whole philosophical area of consciousness, really. Um, his notion of a person was that of a, particular, uh, that of a particular thinking being, which happened to be, but equally could not, could not be, united with a particular body. One might reasonably ask how such beings are to be identified, or re-identified, if not with references to the bodies they occupy. Purely theoretical speculation on ideas of placing one person's mind in another person's body 
and vice versa, of course, raises all sorts of questions with regard to which person each one is and whether their identities are somehow mixed or wholly dependent on where the brain, and thus perhaps the mind, goes. Um, yeah, you can imagine doing this. I mean, we say, we look at somebody and say, you are you, but really we're largely identifying the body. But of course, if their behavior changed completely, radically, you would begin to say, hang on, you're not really you anymore. But on the other hand, if you take their brain out and stick it in another body, and that body then starts to do, you know, to act just like the previous person, then you say, oh, you're just like, well, so, so where, is, where is the identity? in all of this. Um, as I say, it's a big subject, identity, and not uh, really one for, for now. Um, oh yeah, where was I? It might suggest, uh, it might be suggested that it is a unity of our consciousness, of our perceptions, including those of our body, that we regard as constituting self, and not such so much a matter of identity per se. Returning finally to the subject of where consciousness might lie, I, I want to, um, this is just near the end now, to uh, read an article um, from The Oxford Companion to the Mind, which is an excellent book, um, by an experiment by uh, Lackner and Garrett. I don't know when they did this, but it's not that long ago, I think in the last uh, 10, 15 years, which showed a striking example of what one could call multi-consciousness. Uh, there's no point in my trying to paraphrase this, so I'll just read it to you. Consider, for example, the striking discovery by J.R. Lackner and M. Garrett of what might be called an unconscious channel of sentence comprehension. In dichotic listening tests, dichotic means, by the way, um, different. Uh, so, so hearing something different on one ear from, from the other. Um, in dichotic listening tests, subjects listen through earphones to two different channels and are instructed to attend to just one channel. Typically, they can report with great accuracy what they have heard through the attended channel, but can say little about what was going on concomitantly in the unattended channel. Thus, if the unattended channel carries a spoken sentence, the subjects typically report that they heard a voice or even a male or female voice. Perhaps they even have a conviction about whether the voice was speaking in their native tongue, but they cannot report what was said. In Lackner and Garrett's experiments, subjects heard ambiguous sentences in the attended channel, such as, he put out the lantern to signal the attack. Well, obviously that sentence can mean different things, different ways you look at it. In the unattended channel, one group of subjects received disambiguate... I can't even say that word. ambiguating um, input. He extinguished the lantern. While another group had neutral or irrelevant input. The former group could not report what was presented through the unattended channel but they favoured the suggested reading of the ambiguous sentences significantly more than the control group did. Just to explain that, and just in case it isn't clear. So if you use that, that um, lantern um, example, 
you can read he put out the lantern to signal the attack, meaning various things. He snuffed it out, he put it outside, and so on. Whereas there's very little doubt in he extinguished the lantern, what it means. So if you played he extinguished the lantern in the unattended bit, so you don't really know what's going on, whilst also listening, attending to the ambiguous, and then ask the people which version of the ambiguous sentence they had, they understood, they almost all came out with the version that was in the unattended channel. Even though when asked, they can't even say they know what the unattended channel said. Quite strange. Um, they favour the suggested reading of the ambiguous sentences um, significantly more than the, than the control group did. The influence of the unattended channel on the interpretation of the attended signal can be explained only on the hypothesis that the unattended signal is processed all the way to the semantic level, i.e. to the level of understanding. Um, that, in other words, the unattended signal is comprehended. But this is apparently unconscious sentence comprehension. Now, that sounds very strange, really. The whole idea that you can understand pe uh, people talking sentences and everything and have no idea they were said to you is really quite strange. Or should we say it is evidence of the presence in the subjects of at least two different and only partially communi communicating consciousnesses. If we ask the subjects what it was like to comprehend the unattended channel, they will reply sincerely that it was not like anything to them. They were quite unaware of that sentence. But perhaps, as is often suggested about the split-brain patients, there is in effect someone else to whom our question ought to be addressed. The subject who consciously comprehended the sentence has relayed a hint of its meaning to the subject who answers our questions. So, uh, I just thought that was a really rather fascinating um, experiment. So, so, what do you think the implications of that are? What's it saying? Well, um, I think... What fascinates you about that? I think that really leads to the conclusion that language is absolutely vital um, in development of consciousness. It's very difficult to understand what consciousness without language is. And of course, the joke is you can't ask anybody who hasn't got it what it's like. Um, so uh, that would be unfortunate. You certainly can't argue, ask our animals to tell you what their consciousness is like. And um, there's been a lot of thinking around the subject of, of how language is. Language develops, and I mean, we were talking about that, and um, I was certainly thinking that language just grows as your as your consciousness grows, so your language grows with it, so that situations get more complicated, so you need more language to explain it to others, and perhaps to yourself, I think. Mm. I mean, I think probably everybody uses language in their own heads, in their own thoughts. Um, if you didn't have any, it's difficult to know what your consciousness would be like. Um, so... Um, So, yes, uh, as that concludes after that, um, as the book concludes after that particular article, um, we need to look at the whole situation of consciousness in a different way. That what we have taken to be one phenomena, i.e. personal consciousness, is in fact two quite different ones. The sort of consciousness that's connected to the capacity to say in one's own language what is going on, and the sort of consciousness that is just a matter of intelligent information processing. In other words... Adding the ca capacity to make introspective reports actually changes the phenomena. And that's something that goes through science altogether, doesn't it? The minute you observe something, you've already changed it. So if you have 
the ability to say anything about your consciousness, you've already altered it in some way. And if you couldn't say it, well, then we wouldn't know anything. So it's a, it's a, it's a rather circular thing, really. Therefore, one probably has to conclude that human consciousness is somehow tied to our capacity for language. That, um, in the end, what consciousness actually is remains a mystery, and maybe no amount of scientific or philosophical investigation will ever truly explain it. Okay, that's that. Can I... Well, I've got time to add a bit about the mind yeah, and the brain. Yeah, um, yeah the, the argument's been going about the mind and the brain for a very long time, and Descartes started this off, really. Um, he had the idea that the... Um, there was a brain. We all, we've already medical science has got that far. We've got brains. They're doing something. They appear to be controlling us in some way. But really, there was also the mind. The mind was a spiritual thing, a um, thing without any substance. And uh, they weren't connected, really, in his, in his ideas. I was going to say in his mind. That would confuse it. Um, <laughs> they, were, they weren't connected. And in fact, it was later that the famous phrase was coined, and I've completely forgotten who said it, um, the ghost in the machine, and that's really where it comes from, the idea of a, this thing in your head that is your mind. Um, and then from that, hundreds of philosophical arguments have flowed. The trouble is, you see, if you say, if you go to the scientific, what would seem like the scientific view, you'd say, oh, the mind is, you know, it's, of course there's no strange spiritual thing up there, um, ghostly thing. It's just a function of your of your brain. That's all it is. But of course, that leads to this a completely deterministic view of the world. You know, events arise, and I feel like this, and I see the world like this, and I do that. And if you if you produced exactly the same events, everything would go exactly the same. You could produce, and then we wouldn't have free will. Um, which we may or may not have, but we think we have, and that's very important, actually. The fact that you think you have it probably means we do have some level of free will. Um, the opposite, the opposing view is that so the mentalists, as they were called, said, no, 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 you're seeing it all the wrong way around. Everything is mental, because all these objects, everything we see, we are perceived by us. So really, they're just ideas anyway. So there is only the mind, and physic it's the physical that doesn't really exist. Um, that has all sorts of rather strange <laughs> consequences. I don't think many people um, really stick with that one anymore. But um, so, how do you get around the fact that we're just machines, which is is, is the sort of implication? And the more, more recent views um, have a have a view. They basically say, of course, the mind, consciousness, thoughts, and so on come from the brain. I think it'd be silly to say they don't. Um, but it's not as simple as that. It's not the structure of the brain exactly, and not just the physical inputs coming in through your eyes and everything you hear, but it's, it's the order in which things happen, the speed at which things happen, the interactions with the different parts of the brain that generate, send up effectively the signals, the information and so on, to the higher brain. And the higher brain then has, you know, beliefs and ideas and thoughts and so on, and it then reimposes itself back on the rest of the brain to make you to make you do what you do in response to your beliefs and your inputs and so on. So it's a kind of mixed system. This allows, therefore, to to go on studying in the scientific way more and more and more about what the brain actually generates into your mind, so to speak. 
but still doesn't solve the problem of exactly how the mind sends the information back again. Um, so in a way, it is mechanistic, it is physical, but it's extremely difficult to get to how, how it works, and um, possibly it's still, you'll still never will get there. It's not just a matter of complexity. Um, it's a difficult one to, uh, to conclude either way. Um, I think we all think that you can't find out exactly who you are and what you are and what your consciousness is just by doing more and more scientific experiments. It just doesn't work like that. So, uh, yeah, that's that, really. Well, I suppose you will have a cup of tea first. Because I think, I think there's a lot in there. I mean, I was going, well, I don't actually agree with that. And, and maybe you do too. Um, but before we have the discussion, we'll, we'll go downstairs for a cup of tea first. Because there was a lot of stuff in there, you know. This one thing that you raised last week. Before we go down, uh, one thing you raised last week was. Uh, no, so, so the intention of the second half is just, is to have a dialogue. As it, uh, we have not, you know, it's not me and Chris dialoguing with you. It's like we're all dialoguing together about some of the points raised. So, okay. So we'll 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 finish at half nine. So if the questions dry up, we'll finish with an exploration of our own consciousness through meditation. Mm, that's much more interesting. Yes, that's very interesting, isn't it? Okay, so my, I'm going to repeat the questions because it's going to be recorded. So, Mahabodhi. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned some sort of uh, philosophical positions to do with mind, uh, but um, are, are you familiar with, the, with phenomenology and that, that position to do with mind? Not by name. Hang on. So the, the question is, um, is Chris uh, familiar with phenomenality of mind? Answer, not really. Is, uh, yes, a, a term I've come across, a term I've heard, uh, but a term I really remember nothing about. So can you explain it to us then? <laughs> All right. Um, well, th- there's a book called uh, uh, The Embodied Mind, which came out in um, 1991. Uh, and it's by, uh, well, it's based th- three scientists. And uh, one of them's a Tibetan Buddhist. He's called Francisco Varela. And he talks about the, uh, the kind of like dichotomy between cognitive science on the one hand which is science how you explain mind and lived experience on the other and he says that uh, cognitive science has almost nothing to say about lived experience uh, <clears throat> and the, in the book it goes into you know developments in cognitive science so the, he talks about three phases of um, the theory of, of mind. The, the first one is called uh, is this sort of idea of mind being a function of like the brain or something like that. So that's cognitivism. So it's, that's the that's where you get you know mind is like a, a computer. Um, but since then there've been other developments which are, which are kind of more about um, well how the mind is actually a kind of a product of the body as well. So it's a movement away from this sort of the mind is a load of logic circuits towards uh, there's an interaction between mind and body. 
uh, and you know, body has a big sort of effect on it. So um, the 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 philosophical school that that uh, he refer, that he kind of like uses to back this up is something called phenomenology, uh, and uh, basically there's a guy called Heidegger, uh, and he came out with a book called uh, Being and Time in the in the 1920s, and his basic position is that well. Phenomenology, uh, ology is like logos, which means word or meaning, and the phenomena bit is like, well, just phenomena. So it's a bit like what you can say about phenomena, about your experience, uh, if you don't have any theories about it. So what can you say about your experience? without any of that and all you can say really is that you're here you know you you appear here in the world as if you've been thrown here he says um and so he describes everything from the point of view of like well what you can say about experience from experience um and uh <clears throat> it goes on to sort of say that well well what's the you know what's the remedy to this position that you're in um, and he says that, well, what can you do, you know, when you just find yourself in the world? What you do is you care for yourself or you care about that. So there's something sort of, there's a bit of a dichotomy between philosophy that's sort of, well, what's called analytical philosophy on the one hand, which is all about sort of uh, th- um, theories about experience or theories about existence and stuff. And this other thing called phenomenology, which is like about just about experience, you know, what you can say from that point of view. And I think the analytical side has consequences and it leads you to be a bit kind of disembodied or a bit sort of disconnected from, you know, your experience. And I think that leads you to be a bit disconnected from anybody else's experience or animals experience or whatever you know so it's a bit like it has that it has a consequence and i think the consequence of taking more the 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 phenomenological point of view is that you you're aware you know you, you you're you're aware that you're there in your experience and you kind of take it more seriously i am experiencing well i'm here in the world i can't i can't abstract myself out of it i'm here you know and other people are here as well, you know, and they can't abstract, you know, they, they're there with their experience, you know. So I think that has a consequence, quite a Buddhist consequence, of putting you much more in touch with yourself and other people as centres of experience. So I think, you know, from a, uh, from a, uh, a Buddhist point of view, uh, you know, c- coming down to what Marshadu was saying about Pratichat Samatpada or dependent originality, origination, condition co-production. It's like things are kind of condition each other. I think a way of looking at this is that the this it's like lived experience on the one hand, and you know cognitive science or it's like how you frame things and stuff condition each other. You know you can't abstract the one or abstract the other. You're there with both, you know. So it's a bit like, 
you know, you need to be, you know. I mean, uh, Heidegger says something like, uh, you can't have a theory about what makes theory possible, which is that you're here, (laughs) you know, that you have a body, that you're embodied. Uh, So the whole, um, you know, he criticizes Western philosophy back to Plato and Aristotle for turning um, being into a thing, you know, to talk about, basically. So prior to that, it was just being, you know, as your experience. But if you turn it into a thing, you put it at a distance, and then, you know, yeah, you, as I said, you have these consequences of of being able to sort of discount it a bit or, you know, dis, you know, you know, it distances, it, it, I think it has an effect on your ethics and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and there's a strong critique, uh, critique of Descartes as well. In fact, there's a book called Descartes' Error. As well. Okay, that's my contribution. <laughs> Actually, I just wanted to say something from personal experience on that. I found that um, studying Western philosophy... Uh, Turned me, made me very, very cold. Um, after the three years when I came out of university, I felt really like a machine almost. Mm. And as you say, analyzing, putting everything out there and analyzing it, and then not being anything yourself at all. Everything was it's like an object, not the subject. And uh, it's I, uh, all those years, and it was a long time ago, but uh, only when I came to. Uh, Start coming to this place three and a half years ago, then I began to see um, a philosophy that was a philosophy or way of living. Because you know you could go to you could go to uh, lectures on ethics and all sorts, and then come out and feel nothing at all, and do completely different actions that weren't in any way connected with what you've been talking about. There was no overall encompassing um, indication of why you should act in any particular way. And I've only seen that in Buddhism, actually. So that's the first thing that stirred up a reason to uh, to come here. Really. Can, can I add something there as well? I mean, I would just like to emphasise that point from a um, um, scientific point of view. I have um, some involvement in, in medical genetics, and and the the influence <coughs> the influence of, of of new genetic technology upon ethical decisions, which undoubtedly. Um, society will have to face pretty soon. You know, like for example, um, uh, the more genes which are identified to contribute to a particular disease, uh, the more tests uh, a, a child uh, can have, uh, both before birth and, and after birth, and that's going to raise all kinds of ethical decisions. But we're going down that route. We're going down that route, and 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 I've sat on some, um, uh, bit or been involved in some discussions recently about. Uh, what are the principles to set, uh, you know, to frame ethics, you know, to help people make decisions, and, and the, you know, a bit at sea really. And I, I just, you know, keep coming back to, th- you know, it's something I take for granted how clear Buddhism is about, about ethical principles, and I think I've taken it for granted over the years. But now that I'm not so much in Buddhist circles, I think, blimey, you know, Buddhism is very, very clear about ethical principles. And it's something, you know, it's something which I feel a great confidence in. It's, you know, in terms of being able to refer to something which, 
you know, the, the, these uh, these ethical principles. Okay, uh, can I? I'll paraphrase it or try to. Okay. Um, <laughs> 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 or do you want do you want the microphone? <laughs> I just, say um, I just wanted to say it was something I just said to Chris and uh, it's just something about how kind of powerless language is to communicate consciousness in my opinion uh, I um, I mean I've got a lot of respect for, for intellectual pursuits you know and getting right view together through study uh, thrashing out kind of wrong views uh, and things like that but um in my own practice anyway, sort of more and more recently, um, I suppose there's just been more and more of an urge to, to just be. Um, and I suppose sort of what, what I was thinking of really is that, um, well, this is how I experience anyway, it's as soon as I kind of go into the realm of language, um, it feels a little bit like I've left my direct experience, just just a little bit. I, I don't quite know how to be both in language and in my direct experience. And uh, from what I understand, you, you have this sort of two Buddhist consciousness split. You have vijnana and jnana. And vijnana is the sort of discriminative consciousness, i.e. kind of when we're in the, in the mode of language and analysing things and things like that. And then jnana is this sort of, well, what is it? It's a, it's a non-dual awareness, you know, which probably doesn't get us any closer, does it? But it, it's, just, it's just a total being with the immediate experience uh, or something like that. And uh, I think, I mean, I, I caught myself down walking down Market Street one day trying to sort of work out the existential situation of the world, you know, as I always, <laughs> as I often seem to do. And I just remember having this experience, prepare for it, you'll never work it out with language. Uh, you'll never work it out with, with thought and etc. And... Uh, so it, we have an interesting paradox, don't we, with this with this whole course, uh, really, because we are, we, in a way, we're trying to sort of use language to to get to consciousness, which I really, really believe can only be experienced directly. You have this thing coming up like, of primordial knowing, or something like that. And you know, if I if I really sort of take some time out to look at that pillar, some sort of merging kind of seems to happen. You know, where it feels like I'm in touch with something, whereas if I try to write an essay about that pillar or, or something like that, I don't. So um, I don't think that's sort of very heretical, but it, you know, it, it seems to be in line with, with my experience. So um, I wondered if you had anything to say about that, either of you. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, what, sorry, Chris, I'll just say one thing. I mean, one thing, I think language is extremely important. Maybe not to, uh, I, I don't think, you know, I agree with you, you know, concepts and, and language, which is an expression of concepts, is not going to get to the mystery of consciousness. That, I think that's going to be got in through, in, in, for me anyway, Buddhist practice. Um, but I do, you know, let's, I think language is extremely important in, in terms of it allows empathy. And, uh, you know, w- one thing we touched upon last week was the importance of language, because for language to, to arise, um, to be able to, happen um the, there's two specific parts of the brain which evolved you know the, the wine region and and the Broca region which are kind of unique to our brains and, and i think that kind of reflects just how important language is in terms of being able to communicate well i mean you can see you know you can communicate you can organize hunting groups you can be tactical in your hunting you can say right go over there 
you know, or whatever. But I, I think, you know, particularly in Buddhist practice, you know, you know language is extremely important in, in, in allowing empathy, you know, so you can tell me how you feel if I say a certain thing and, and I can learn from that. So I agree with you. I think when it starts going into conscious, yeah, you let meditation and, and reflection do that. But it's, I think it's very important in meta. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I don't need to say it. According to modern linguistic theory, yeah. uh, or some that I've read, it's like they, they say that there can be no I yeah. sense of self without language. Yeah. Yes. Language chops experience yeah. up yeah. Uh, in a sense. So yeah. there can be no view of self, yeah. as it were, yeah. without that linguistic yeah. distinction between mummy and young Nicky or you know, whatever it is. Thank you. Sorry, I know Sukato wants to say something. Do you want to say anything? I, I, just want, I just wanted to say, actually, that thinking about what you were just saying is that it is the, it's the insight that you got as you were walking down the street that sticks with you, not the words have how you describe the insight, isn't it? Mm. And, and when often, you know, I'm obviously I'm a lot newer to this than many of you, but um, when you get one of those flashes of insight... Um, you think, oh, that's what it is, it's blah. But actually the words fade quite quickly, and I can remember I've had insights even while sitting here meditating, and they've gone. But somehow the feeling of the insight often hasn't gone. Um, so in that case, in those sort of cases, language is very, very weak, really. And, um, and the whole of Western philosophy doesn't, well, that I've come across, the bits that I've come across, doesn't discuss the whole idea of being at all, just being. It's, there's no discussion about that. It doesn't see it as scientific enough to be worthy, which is very unfair. Okay, well, I was, I was intrigued by this because I think, if I understood you correctly, at one point you were discussing language and how semantics helps you know, the developing individual to, to make sense of the world, communication within uh, oneself, so consciousness. Um, but my experience is when I'm learning, I'm definitely going beyond what I can describe. Um, and therefore, I don't have words for that particular thing as yet. So, therefore, a developing human being and therefore consciousness, at least in my experience, goes beyond words. Regularity, you know, regularly, um, and um, I'm intrigued by that because because you seem to be implying that actually language is um, is necessary for consciousness or at least self consciousness, uh, you know, to to arise. But my experience is, I'm not so sure. You know, say for instance, I do singing exercises. Uh, I used to, you know, sing as a tenor, and uh, very very quickly. When I would go, when I would discover something new, I'd, I'd run out of words, and it, it was more like a feel, or, or you know, um, of what was going on. Yeah, so that seemed to contradict, in a way, the necessity for semantics, if you like, in terms of you know helping the consciousness to develop, apart from communicating with others. Yeah, the language then follows quickly after. The language develops as well, but following on. It seems that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> okay, I was just saying that it, it seems that, yeah, I, I, I agree, but it seems the language somehow follows afterwards. Um, so you have the experience and, and, and the knowing and the feeling of the, of the new meaning that you've discovered, and then you develop a language to go with it afterwards. And, but that's often rather a pale reflection of what you just learned. You see, I thought, I thought language was uh, were actually symbols. You know, the same concepts were symbols. So words are symbols, and therefore they are able to point beyond its own. And therefore you're able to learn, for instance. Mm-hmm. It seems to be both ways around. That's the trouble. That makes it so confusing. I was reading a study, this sounds very obscure, two days ago about deaf children. And this sort of answers what you're saying. I'm trying to, th- trying to explain what I read now because I didn't fully understand it at the time. But deaf children who are taught to, s- to sign develop, develop in a very, very different way to children who are not taught to sign in terms of how they communicate. And now I'm thinking about what you've said, that maybe language is a gateway to developing consciousness mm. rather than a necessity for consciousness. Mm. Because why were these... These kids could catch up, but they really struggled in terms of how they communicated if they weren't given a structure. Mm. And maybe that's all that language is. Mm. Or the end product. Mm. But not essential, they still developed. They just developed differently and more slowly in our constraints of what development is used to say they couldn't do things we couldn't see and perceive because they couldn't tell us. don't know. Is the signing then just a different type of language? Yeah, well, I th- I, 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 that's what I've assumed, it's a type of language. But the ones that weren't taught to formally sign mm. would still communicate, mm. but not in a way that, A, they could be understood by anybody else, or they could be, but not in a sophisticated a manner. Mm. Just So where is language? Is my question. I'm sort of trying to answer it as well and failing. So I and then can't see we've got something? I'd just like to say that uh, language, to me, uh, connecting with people is extremely important, but my inner language is a pain in the backside, (laughs) and it gets in the way of everything that I want to achieve. And I think if I can get rid of my language that lies within, I'd be a lot better off, because the feelings I gain from being absorbed in a task uh, doesn't need to be put into words. Therefore, it's not my language, it's not the need to express myself, it's the body, it's the physical or the spiritual uh, that I'm feeling. And therefore, language to me, from my experience, isn't important unless it's communicating with other people. Communicating with myself is a daily nightmare (laughs) that I wish uh, I didn't have to go through, which is why I need to... uh, but here, practicing Buddhism, meditation, and, and awareness. I don't know whether you agree with that or not, but language definitely is a barrier to me, and I'll stand to be corrected. Um, 
It really follows on from what um, the last two speakers have said, which is that I'm interested in consciousness as something which changes. So it's not something that's fixed, it's something that's affected, whether you're taught to sign, to communicate in a certain way, or whether you're taught beliefs that mean that you'll speak to yourself in a certain way every day. So I think what I'm doing as a Buddhist is trying to change my consciousness, it's trying to change what I believe and to bring into awareness when you talked about um, sorry is that Aiden? Yeah, yeah w- w- when, when you talked about communicating with yourself as a living nightmare I think it's trying to bring that critical self-talk into awareness and transform it because what I think and then what, what I think releases an emotion which then gives me a physical state to which I respond and that becomes my consciousness if I think something and believe something and act something every single day of my life that changes who I am. So why I'm interested in these discussions on consciousness is thinking, well, what do I do with it? What do I do with my environment? What do I do with my actions? So are you going to do that next week? (laughs) (laughs) Great. Uh, yeah, I've, I've forgot what I was going to say now. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, um, <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think, uh, um, well, I think, you know, one of the things that, that people kind of often, you know, agree distinguishes us from the animals is. is, well, it's like in that film 2001 where the, the ape sort of, uh, you know, is finds the, the bone and starts hitting the other ape with it. You know, it's like he's, he's made a tool sort of thing. Uh, and I think, I think the way that, that came about was that um, he sort of... He did the first sort of abstraction, you know. So it's a bit like, uh, you know, you've, you've, got a, you've got a hillside that's all brushwood and stuff like that, and then uh, lightning strikes it and it turns into fire but all the animals just run away from it but at some point somebody would have would some some human would have would have made some sort of abstraction about that that you know fire fire on the hillside fire make fire you know so so the whole thing of abstraction gives us a capacity to to manipulate the world and to do work and things you know so so that's what you know that's really useful. You know it means we can we can do all sorts of stuff. We can do science. You know and do all sorts. Of, um, but it's a bit of a curse as well. You know because we're constantly doing it whether we like it or not. You know, and I think um, you know the Buddhist sort of uh, view about I suppose abstraction or, or having views is that you. Um, you just see them as as view. Well, you try, first of all, you try and have right view, which is to see something correctly. You know, so uh, if I look at that table uh, and I say to myself, "Oh, table," uh, but I really don't see it as as something fixed. You know, I see it as a sort of impermanent, you know, kind of mixture of things that's going to pass away. That's more of a right view than 
than kind of thinking table and kind of clinging to it. So uh, this, we need to do that assessment, you know. But it's like with views, you, you become less and less attached to them. You just you use them in a fluid sort of way. You know, you use language in a fluid sort of way. And, you know, you try and be sort of more, more and more accurate about the way that you see things, you know, so how you see yourself, how you see other people. You know, you see them more correctly. You know, you see them as centres of experience. You see them as impermanent. You know, all the things that are important, and you try not see them as things that are kind of not true or irrelevant or all those sort of things, you know. So I think, you know, the, the thing of, like, language is that process of... I mean, I think, you know, in cognitive therapy, they, they use the term Socratic questioning. So you question your own thoughts, you know. If you've got a thought, you know, nobody loves me and you feel a bit depressed about that, you know, you don't just accept the thought as, as a given. You sort of say, well, hang on, you know, what's the evidence for and against? And you write it all down and then you, you come up with a more balanced thought which sort of changes your view then, or changes your, your mood and makes you a bit sort of less depressed. So, so it's like, you know, we need to work on our thoughts and work on our assessments of things, you know. So that's one side of things. That's like the wisdom aspect. But the other side is like the, the, the more sort of consciousness aspect, the, what's called chitta. So it's a bit, a bit like more states of mind that you get into. So, so you develop that into more positive states of mind uh, that aren't necessarily discursive, you know. So higher states of consciousness, you know, elevated states of, well, which end up in sort of compassion. So you end up with, like, wisdom on the one hand, how you assess things, and compassion on the other as to how you respond to the world, you know, what you bring in terms of your state of mind sort of thing. So I think, you know, it's, it's worth bearing those two things in mind, you know, that, that you know, consciousness it has that sort of, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, ethical states of mind as well as sort of, um, you know, language and assessment and stuff. Thank you. Do you want to meditate for 10 minutes? Just sit quietly? Or, huh? or is somebody got one, one last burning question? Is there one? If not, we'll just sit quietly. Okay. Uh, is it burning? Okay. Okay. Burn away. <laughs> and it's gonna ask, this is a question, actually, more than a statement. Um, I was taught, you can disprove, you can disagree with me here or not, that roughly 30% of the brain is functions consciously, and the rest of it, 70%, is subconscious and I've heard 10, 90 but I've heard 30, 70 most but the brain is an amorphous mass of neurons and substances and so I don't it doesn't quite hold true with me that it's such a clear cut boundary mm. and I'm really sort of curious probably I should have come to the science lecture <laughs> didn't know it was happening until afterwards because that just strikes me as so such a medical approach as in we have cardiologists yeah. we have lung specialists we have conscious brain specialists and subconscious brain bollocks. And it just... What are your views on that? <laughs> yeah, on... What, where does consciousness cease to be consciousness and become subconsciousness? Okay, this is very easy. I don't know. 
I don't know. I don't know. I, I think that there you're getting into the realms of literalism, and it really, to be honest, that doesn't. That's not an important question for me. What What is important is I do believe that you know part of my Buddhist practice over the years has been bringing more and more of the unconscious into my conscious, and the more I, you know, the more of the unconscious I know, the better, really. So. And I think, you know, the, the whole symbolism of the enlightenment of, of the Buddha is to do with, you know, the, the explosion of, of some of the elements of unconsciousness in, into consciousness. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. What does philosophy say? Well, I mean... I think well, Maharaja will agree, but uh, I don't know, this is the philosophy of the science, but surely uh, you can't say that there's this part 70% un- unconscious and, and 30% conscious or whatever the figure is because it's, it's, it's moving around sections of the brain anyway. So, um, so it's expanding from a small amount of consciousness to a large amount, then it's, it's conscious here, but then it's now subconscious there or unconscious there. And, and so on. So this keeps this keeps changing. Um, obviously, there are lower parts of your brain, perhaps, that can't ever be described as conscious, but large amounts of it can um, play a part in consciousness at any one mm. different time. Um, so it's impossible yeah. to say, really, um, yeah. which bit is conscious yeah. and which bit isn't. Yeah. Okay. Okay, are you, you satisfied with that? <laughs> okay, well, let, look, we've been doing a lot of heady stuff, so let's just um, settle into our bodies, become aware of our experience just quietly, and, um, and we'll leave at half past. So we've got about eight minutes to do that.